Welcome to the Adventure for Good podcast. We're your hosts, Chris and Kim. In June 2018, we both left our careers at the age of 31 and started traveling with the mission of finding and creating work locally in the United States and around the world that inspires us while helping other people and the environment. This podcast documents our adventures as well as highlights the inspirational people that we meet along the way. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to episode 7 of the Adventure for Good podcast. We're your hosts, Chris and Kim, and today we have another fun interview for you, right? Yep. (laughs) We interview our new friend, Leandra, and we met her when we were living in the jungles of Bolivia. And Chris, how did we end up getting to the jungles? Boss? (laughs) Wow. What are you looking for here? Okay. How did we end up getting to know other projects and where? Oh, well, that's a really long story. We will be talking more about that in our next episode when we give a full recap of what we did and and why we were in the jungle working with Edda Projects. But uh, Edda Projects is a non-governmental organization based out of Washington State and it was founded by a woman that we've become friends with since our time at Michigan Tech when we worked with them on some water projects through another organization called Engineers Without Borders. So we'd kept in touch with the the founder of the organization over the last eight years or so, ten years, and, yeah. and really was sort of the impetus for us to come to South America to begin with was to spend some time working with them. So... We'll we'll talk fully about our nine ish weeks yeah. at 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 a projects in the jungle, but uh, that'll be next episode. Right, that'll be the in two weeks from now. That we met Leandra in the first couple of days. We got to uh, at a projects and worked with her for a few weeks before she moved on. But it was awesome getting to know her, and we're really excited to share this interview. We talk a little bit about the, some of the seasonal work she's done, and also she was in Bolivia doing some research on a tropical disease. So we talk about that as well. Anything else? Oh, we when we were interviewing her, we were all sitting in a... Outdoor amphitheater. Yeah, outdoor amphitheater. Classroom, if you will. Yeah, and there were a lot of flies, so you may hear Black us, flies that bite. Yes, yeah, so you may hear us slapping flies, also called tabanos in Spanish, so we did, were working on that as we were doing this interview. But hope everyone enjoys, and we will see you again in two weeks. And thanks to Leandra for taking the time to talk with us, and yay. Yes, definitely. Enjoy. We're here with our new friend, Leandra, and she was kind enough to sit down and tell her, wants to tell her story. So first off, thank you for spending time and taking the time to talk with us. Can you give the listeners a little, I guess, a brief overview of who you are? Yeah. um, My name's Leandra. I'm 25, 26 in a few weeks, and we're here in Bolivia at Editor Projects, and I'm here with Hopkins, Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. I'm I'm a nurse, but I am working as a researcher, um, and I am setting up and running a project on Chagas disease. So we're we're working with local communities close to close to Edda. Yeah. How yeah? How long ago did you finish your nursing degree and? I guess, how long have you been bouncing around in the jungles of South America? 
Yeah, so I graduated four months ago in May. It's September right now. Yeah, so I graduated in May and with my master's in nursing. And I, um, I didn't have a job lined up right away. So I had been working with a professor over at the School of Public Health in Lima, kind of in my time in between semesters, on a research project on autism. And when it came time for me to graduate, I, I went to Bob's office and I said, hey, Bob, what do you think? Should I go back to Lima? Do you have more work for me? And he said, hey, what do you think about Bolivia? And then I had thought about Bolivia, not at all. And he asked if I wanted to set up set up a field site here, a rural field site. His research he's, has been in hospitals in Bolivia for the last like 20 years, um, but never out in the campo. So I said, yeah, sure, why not? I didn't have anything set in stone work-wise back in the States. And he said, you know, I can, I can pay you kind of, you're going to be really poor. I said, (laughs) okay. So I've been here for three months and I'll be here another few weeks for a total of about four months down in South America. And so in your undergrad, did you do your undergrad in nursing or was that a totally different ball of wax? No. So I did my undergrad in Spanish and biology and I thought I was going to be a doctor for a little while. And I took a, a, what was going to be a year off after college um, to kind of figure out what I wanted to do. I decided I didn't want to be a doctor, and a year turned into two. And I was teaching skiing for people with disabilities, and I was working for a vacation company, which is kind of the dream job. But I decided that that wasn't going to be a sustainable forever kind of career path for me. And I met some nurses along the way who told me, yeah, like I nurse for nine months out of the year, and then I go travel for three months or I work another job for three months. And I was like, wow, like that's, that's an option, question mark. Like I don't have to work nine to five for the rest of my life. Yeah, so I went to nursing school. Had you had, you had done traveling th- throughout your undergrad and before you got to college or was the affinity for travel newly discovered? I think, well, I had not done any travel into the developing world before my master's program. My family's German, so we've traveled to Europe, and I've been really lucky. I've got some family in Israel, so kind of like the family vacation was to Munich, which is not the norm, right? Um, (laughs) But awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so I hadn't done any traveling in South America or in the developing world, and so my my first trip down into Lima was really interesting. It was my first time in South America. I like to call it Latin America light. It's It's got all of the like amenities of a big city, and it has all of the weird nuance of, of a developing nation. And that was a nice intro into Bolivia, which is certainly less developed than Peru. I think it's probably one of the less least developed countries, maybe, in South America. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. one of the least developed ones. Um, Certainly the poorest. So it's been, it's been interesting to be here. But yeah, I've always liked to travel. I've liked, I love meeting new people. That's my favorite thing about traveling, I think, is is the people you meet. Yeah. How long were you in Lima the first time? I went for five weeks and then came back, did a semester of school, and then went back for a month. Okay. Yeah. So this was part was this part of your master's degree program or was this totally separate? It was separate. I had a friend who was getting her PhD with Dr. Gilman and she asked we had talked about the projects and she said, "Yeah, um, he's always looking for people to work and I found a grant that funded me to go down there." And was, you know, fully supported by Dr. Gilman was like, "Yeah, come on down. I always have work." So I was really lucky to find him. He's got a million and one projects, and so he's always in need of people coming down. He liked my work the first time and so asked if I wanted to come down a second. Cool. Yeah, no, that's 
It's always interesting to hear how people get involved in development work or, you know, work in developing countries, whether it's development work or not. So, yeah, like what five years ago, would you ever imagine you'd be sitting in Bolivia right now? No, not at all. I mean, five years ago, I was like, probably thought I was going to be a doctor. That would have been, yeah, yeah, so about five years ago, I was a senior in college. Yeah, and that was the that was the game plan was to be a doctor. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so no, this is very different. <laughs> and do you think it's something you'll continue doing into the future, or after you leave Bolivia, this will be your your last time visiting the developing world and working on projects that would maybe benefit these populations? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a question I really like answering because I feel like a lot of times people kind of look at my resume and hear about my experiences and they say, oh, well, you'll get to be a travel nurse and you can do all these things and you can work anywhere. And I actually think the more I travel, the more I've come to value community. So career-wise, I think that there's a lot of really valuable work to be done as a nurse in the, in the public health development sphere domestically. So I would absolutely love to keep traveling to the developing world. I would love to keep having these experiences that are really unique, that are so much more than just like backpacking and seeing the sites. But I think that the more I work in developing countries, the more challenges I see of Americans coming into work in developing nations. And I think at this point where we're at in global health and development, I don't think it's we're doing it the best that we can do. And so I'm not comfortable creating a career in that sphere yeah so maybe it'll be something that you do for a month at a time like you you talked about nine months on three months off and maybe you use that month to go and help on a project or something yeah yeah I don't want to work as a nurse in a developing country like I think that nurses in developing countries nurses in any country should be from that country I can see myself maybe working in a role of like education and development maybe I would love to come down. I have a dream. I want to um, I want to work on an olive grove for a while. <laughs> that would um, be amazing. I want to be an oyster farmer for a few months. I'd like to go work on a vineyard. So those are things I can see doing for like a month or two at a time. But actually working in global health, I think, is is not my calling. I have a lot of passions about health in, Amer- in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I mean, people need to have passions about both. So that's really exciting and really interesting. So I think a lot of people might hear that you you finished your master's degree in nursing and then rather than running and getting a job immediately, you were able to to take off and go work and maybe your costs were sort of offset in South America, but you weren't making the income of a nurse or a professional. How were you able to manage to do that and take those couple of months or it sounds like maybe even a couple of years in between your undergrad and graduate to to have this opportunity and these experiences without having to race to get that job right away? Yeah, so a lot of my experiences have hinged on the fact that I didn't have student loans. So um, it's a little bit of a long story, but my my college was funded and most of my grad school was funded through family funds. So I graduated from my undergrad, no loans, and then I kept my expenses like we've talked about in the past, like keeping expenses incredibly low, I managed to not pay rent for almost two years, Wow! Um, which people are like, how did you do that? And I worked. How did you do that? So I worked, yeah, so I worked for a company, uh, uh, outdoor travel company, and they had housing wherever you were. So whatever region I was leading trips in, I had my housing covered. In between jobs, I went home, and then I taught skiing my first season in Aspen, and I was given housing as part of my job. And then my second season, I taught in Park City, where I have an uncle, so I was paying rent 
that was much less than most people would pay in Park City. Yeah, so I actually, like one of my like proud financial accomplishments, I paid for my first two semesters of grad school out of pocket with money that I had saved in two years doing something that people, most people would consider like a pretty low paying job. Like I wasn't making a ton of money. I think I might've qualified for like a poverty tax credit a few years, but I was pocketing almost everything I was making, which was awesome. So I had a little bit of money for grad school. I had the rest left over from family money. So definitely my travels have, I've been able to do them because I ha- don't have a loan payment to make every month. So right now, my, my plane ticket was covered down here, and I'm making $500 a month to offset my expenses, which in Bolivia is perfectly fine. But I'm certainly not saving any money, right? But I, I don't have a car payment at home, and I don't have a loan payment. And so I'm, I'm really, really lucky in that situation. And then you and I, we talked about this a little bit. My family money is like kind of a weird, touchy subject. But my father passed away when I was nine. We sued the hospital. We got some money. I have a trust fund, which makes me feel very rich. Um, to say I have a trust fund. Um, <laughs> yeah. Is, you do feel like when you say a trust fund. <laughs> right. Yeah, a connotation. Has, but <laughs> Exactly. It has that, like, rich kid connotation. But that trust fund um, came from came from the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, nothing nothing's free. Right. Yes. Yeah, and so it's, I think it's, and we appreciate you mentioning that. And we, we, again, we talked about it before we did the interview. But I think I think it's important to hear that, you know, when you, you spent years living like you said, at near the poverty level, just to save money and you were finding cheap places to stay. You said you even potentially qualified for a poverty tax credit. So it's, you aren't, you didn't just come from a, a, a rich family and everything you have is laid out for you. You've, you've actually worked for, to be here. And it's, I think that's important to hear. So we appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Circling back a little bit, back to, how you paid for school uh, or and how you lived for the two years frugally, you said. Can you elaborate a little bit on some of the jobs that you did and the seasonal work that you did? Because I think that a lot of people might find that really interesting. And yeah, that you're able to work sort of a non-traditional job, not making a ton of money yet, save up enough money to pay for most of nursing school. Yeah, so my summer job was with a company called Backroads that does week-long bike tours. So I was living in Jackson, Wyoming, which is a, first of all, fucking beautiful place, um, but also crazy expensive. And so the company had a house. So when I was on trip for six or seven days, I was in the parks. I was in Yellowstone and Grand Teton. And then I lived in the town, in the in the house uh, that Backroads had when I was in between trips, which was sometimes two days and sometimes it was a whole week where I was off and not working, which I think a lot of people are really uncomfortable with the idea of not working. They're like, yeah. what do you mean you didn't work for a whole week? I'm like, I didn't I, work for a whole week. I had a week off. <laughs> <laughs> and it's great. And so like I was working 24 hours a day for a whole, like, you know, six days in a row. And then I would have a whole week off or I'd have two weeks off and I would just get to play with my friends. We lived in this funny little split level house and so like I have this like very distinct memory of driving past the house in the van with all of my guests. I was on trip. So I'm driving this fifteen passenger van and like everyone is asking, like, how how do you live? Where do you live? What's your life like? And so we drive past this little single family split level. I'm like, so that's the backroads leader house. There were, you know, sometimes fourteen of us in there and everyone was like, What do you mean there are fourteen of you? Like, how do you all live there? <laughs> it's, you know, it's a very, very humble abode but fun. Lived out of a suitcase. And so I would do that from like May until October, go home for about a month and then go out and start skiing late November and train for a little bit. And then ski season was kind of a sprint from like 
the week before Christmas until like the end of March, I was working six, seven days a week. And yeah. so that was challenging. What kept me sane was that my, my day job, if you will, was teaching skiing, right? So I got to ski for a living. Um, I was working with people with disabilities. It was my hands down favorite job I've ever had because everyone's just super grateful. And I think that that's something that like I really took from working seasonally more than like, yeah, I made money and I had a lot of fun. But truly, like you just you don't take things for granted after you ski with someone who only has one arm total. Like one of my clients has an arm, no legs. That's it. And, you know, so when you work with people like that who are getting out and getting after it and it's so hard for them, like it's so much harder for that woman to go skiing than it is for me, right? Yeah. And she still wants to, and she wants to get after it. And then, you know, I just, I woke up every morning, and I was like, well, I got two arms, two legs, and a brain that works the way that society has been designed for. And so after that, everything else is detailed, you know? So do you mind real quick elaborating on how somebody with only one arm skis? Is there a special... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So she sits. She It's a, it's a sit-ski. Hers had two skis underneath, so it was pretty stable. And then she had... She held one, it's called an outrigger, and it's kind of like a, a ski pole with a little baby ski on the bottom. So she held one, and then on the side that she was missing her limb, she had a prosthetic outrigger. Oh. So where she normally had a prosthetic arm, she would take her arm off, and she would put this prosthetic outrigger on to ski with. And she was actually really funny about it. One day she came, she was like, man, I, I lost my... I lost my prosthetic for my a whole week. I couldn't find it anywhere. And she was just, like, very casual about it. Like, you know, some people misplace, like, their dry cleaning. We were like, Lisa, that's your arm. Um, <laughs> so did she just wear her ski arm instead? <laughs> she had a bunch of arms. Okay. She was missing her favorite arm, though. So uh, <laughs> life was hard. <laughs> wow. No, I think that's incredible. And I, you talked a little bit the other day about the contrast between the types of people you led on your back roads versus the types of people on your ski, yeah. in your ski job. And maybe if you don't mind talking a little bit about that contrast in one versus the other. Yeah. So, I mean, like generally speaking, both jobs, people were very grateful. They were very excited to be where they were. There were people that I worked with, clients who I worked with in back roads who, who weren't super excited to be where they were. And that was kind of crazy to me to be in a beautiful place doing super fun things like I mean the back roads trip is fully like catered everything is done for you and that's awesome right so you're paying a few thousand dollars to be on a vacation in this beautiful place and we still definitely had clients who were just found something to complain about right like they they didn't their butts hurt from riding their bikes too long and and I had a co-worker actually like put it so well a woman came up and we were like hey how was your ride and she was like oh my butt hurts and my friend said, after she had walked away, said she's in a beautiful place doing a really fun thing and all she can think about is how much her butt hurts, right? And so I think it's really challenging to work with people like that who, you know, I cared a lot and I wanted everyone to be happy and I felt like their happiness hinged on, on me, on how me providing this experience. And, like, the reality is, is, like, sometimes you just can't make people happy. And I think, you know, coming right out of college, that was a really hard Right. thing for me yeah lesson to learn and yeah eye-opening yeah. experience too yeah but at, at the end of the day from the and you did that for two seasons each or was that just yeah. once okay yep two seasons of backwards two seasons of teaching skiing yeah so like when I had a kid who had a bad day teaching skiing I was like well he doesn't know it but I'm I'm changing his life right so like every day like I got to change people's lives and sometimes that ended with like 
the kid with the developmental disability running down the hill, ripping his helmet off and with no skis because he didn't <laughs> want to ski that day. And that kid came in the shins with his ski boots. It only happened once. You know, I'm like, that's a crappy day. But it was still, you know, I was like, one day. Right. One He'll day. thank me. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Do you, do you think you'll ever go back and do that type of work again in, like, the interim while you're nursing? Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of, like, when I started nursing school and, like, thinking about, like, my life and my career. I was like, oh, I want a job where I can always also have the time to teach skiing. It's, yeah, it's my favorite thing in the world. Um, I volunteered with the small adaptive group in Baltimore. So we ski on like, it's not a mountain, it's a hill in Pennsylvania, (laughs) only on weekends. And sometimes it rains, but yeah, like I even with nursing, I know what you mean. (laughs) Yeah. So like even in nursing school and I was really busy and I was like, Oh man, I got a test on Monday. I was like, whatever, I'm going to go teach a ski lesson on Sunday. Uh, cause that's, that's where I find my happiness. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important. And I guess coming back to that, like what you find for happiness, what are your plans moving forward and after Bolivia and, and onward? Um, that's a hard question. <laughs> yeah, way to ask a loaded question. <laughs> so, like, immediately I have a job lined up as a nurse coming back to the States. This is, oh, my mom's going to hate this. Whenever people ask me what type of nurse do I want to be, I say the kind that doesn't work that much. Yeah. My mom's like, Leandra. <laughs> well, it's true. Um, no, like, I, I want to be a nurse. I want to I wanna work with kids. But, yeah, truly, like, I, I want to for a good long while, have a job where I'm, you know, working enough to sustain myself and save some money, but like definitely working in a way that I have a lot of time to do things that aren't work. I think like moving forward, I never want to be defined by my work. I think that that's a really challenging thing to do in the States where very much it's like, Hey, like, what's your name? Who are you? What do you do? Yeah. Right. So like when people ask me, what do I do? I want to say, well, I run and I mountain bike and I ski. Oh yeah. And I'm a nurse. You know, and it's, it's definitely part of my identity, but I don't want it to be my entire identity. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting point because, like you said, in the States, so many people focus on that. Like, what do you do? What do you do? And that it's refreshing to hear a different perspective um, because I think that's something that we're striving to move away from, too, is, yes, we have engineering degrees and we worked as engineers, but that's not all we do. And right. I think that's something that, yeah, a lot of people are trying to move away from, too. And having that crisis, like you guys left, and it's like, oh my god, I'm not working. Right. Who am I? What am I doing? Yes. Right. <laughs> well, and you've you've kind of never had that, right? Because you you went to university and you left university, and rather than jump right on it, you kind of went and did the seasonal work thing. So, yeah. I guess are you are you freaking out going the other direction? Like, oh my god, I'm gonna get a real job, and I have to be somewhere for more than six months at a time. Yeah, hundred percent. Like, <laughs> yeah. I have a job lined up and I still apply for jobs. Like that's a stupid thing to do. Like what am I doing? But yeah, like totally like committing to a single place. And so even the job I've lined up, it's as a research nurse. So the nature of research studies is that at some point they end. So even this job, like I know isn't going to be for forever because at some point the study is going to end and then I'll go find another job. And maybe it'll be as a research nurse on a different study, but like, it's definitely not, you know, I'm not jumping into something that I think I'm going to be there for 20 years. Because, yeah, that's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Have you always had that sort of, like, live first, work mm-hmm. second mentality, or was that something that was acquired somewhere along the way? No, yeah. I was, like, 
I'm good at school. Mm -hmm. And so I was like a really serious student in school. So totally, like when I graduated, I kind of had this like crisis of like, what am I going to do? No one's telling me what to do, right? Like it had always been like, oh, you're just going to take more classes and then you're going to get a job. And then I didn't like just get a job. And so I think that I was surrounded by a lot of other people who put their life first and their job second. And I think that that's kind of where I picked it up. I remember going home once after a season and my, my aunt was in town and she said something to the effect of, oh, are you going back to that backroads thingy? And I was like, my job? Like, yeah, I am. But right, but like in like my like upper middle class upbringing, like working part time, like at a restaurant at night and then teaching skiing for 13 dollars an hour like isn't a career right and it can be like for like I have friends who have been teaching skiing for 15 years and are absolutely making a living and supporting their families or they're making a living and just supporting themselves because they're single like and they're so happy and still like in the states like that's not considered success yeah so I think I did have that like you know do what is success I think I had to think about that a lot and and I was lucky to be around people who were just so happy doing what they were doing and so that was success. Yeah. And I'm glad. Yeah, that's no, that's important. Me. Yeah. Yeah, that's super important. So moving forward, do you think, I guess, what would be your dream job if you were going to create it that you would say, I've won the lottery? Oh, that's also a hard question. So I don't have one answer to like, what's my one dream job? And so one of the things that really attracted me to nursing is that like, I can have eight different dream jobs in my lifetime, right? So like, when I get bored of being a research nurse, like I could go work in a hospital and when I'm over the hospital, I can work in a community setting. And so I think that like I don't, there isn't a dream job, but a dream life is one that allows me to kind of like pick up and move and be wherever I want. Um, I think being a nurse at a, like a clinic at a ski hill would be pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> See a lot of broken bones probably. Yeah. Like maybe not like the most interesting sort of nursing, right? Like compared to the rotations I've done at Hopkins Hospital where they're doing like these world-class surgeries, but, like, it's a dream life, right? Yeah. So you get to ski on my lunch break. That yeah. would be pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Although I'm terrible at skiing. Yeah. <laughs> patient, patient X. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, would be, I would be in your office so fast. <laughs> Great. I'll, I'll be there. I'm ready. Probably while putting the boots on. Hey, not quite. <laughs> uh, I like skiing. I'm just never, I've never been good at it. Yeah. Why? No, you didn't kill. Think of the fly. He's he's hovering. Yeah, we're just killing flies all over the place. It's a Bolivian national Got sport. Him. Yeah, Bolivian <laughs> national sport. I love that. Killing flies. Just for a couple of weeks a year, yeah. supposedly. Supposedly. It's a short window to practice. <laughs> but before we finish the podcast, uh, we wanted to, I guess since we're sitting in the middle of a very steamy Bolivia at the moment, in the middle of the jungle, we want to talk a little bit about the research that you're doing here. So I know you mentioned it's on Chagas disease. Can you explain a little bit where that comes from and yeah, what and, you guys and, are looking at? And what it is. And what yeah. it is. Quick and dirty on Chagas. I didn't know anything about Chagas before coming down here. So really, there was a lot of trust instilled in me by my by my. PI, my principal investigator. But anyway, Chagas, one of 17 neglected tropical diseases. So it is a parasite that lives in the body of a bug that lives down here. The bug bites a human, and humans are then become infected, not always. There's a ton that's not known about Chagas. So it manifests as like cardiac, so heart abnormalities, 
and gastrointestinal abnormalities. It's a chronic disease, so once you have Chagas, you have it for life. So the, there's still not much known about like how much it shortens your lifespan. A lot of people are asymptomatic, so they like live with Chagas their whole life and they don't feel anything. And other people, like I said, have these like pretty serious effects from Chagas. Uh, so we're down here studying the prevalence of Chagas disease. So Bolivia is a crazy diverse country, right? So yeah. like we're in the steamy jungle. La Paz is the Altiplano, like super high, super cold. There are like no bugs there. So the the rate of Chagas just varies massively, right? So it's like 80% or it was 80% 10 years ago in some places. And then like in La Paz, it's 0%. So we're, you know, we're in the jungle, but we're not in the river basin. And so there's not much known where we are about how much Chagas there is. And then, you know, you guys have been here in Bolivia and like rural Bolivia is fucking rural. Like yeah. <laughs> it's a few hours down a dirt road. So these are communities where we don't know how much Chagas there is because no one's going out there and testing the bugs. No one's going out and diagnosing the people. So there are huge swaths of the country where they're kind of like guessing, you know, based on mapping and what they know about bugs and entomology. But we, we don't know a lot about it. So that's been funny working in communities. People ask questions, well, what about this? What about that? And I'm like, well, I don't know. But, like, no one knows. Yeah. So that's what we're doing with that. We're hoping to find out how many people have it here, uh, if they contracted it here, how much people are moving. Um, they're building a lot of roads in, you know, everywhere in the developing world. But, you know, here in Bolivia, people are able to move a lot more. So I think we're seeing more movement from, like, endemic zones of Chagas to non-endemic zones. And if people don't get a diagnosis and treatment in those in those endemic zones, then they don't have access once they move out of that endemic zone. But like I said, you live with Chagas your whole life. Yeah. Um, so there's kind of that narrow window to, to diagnose. And then there's treatment for kids, but treatment's kind of complicated. And not a lot's known about that. So it's complicated. Yeah. Have you enjoyed the research this summer? Yeah, I love it. I think it, it's my first time designing a study. So like funny things about this study is like, I am the research designer. I'm the research manager. I'm my own supplies procurement person. I'm my own HR manager. Like, you know, it's it's a smallish study, so we're doing everything, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm hiring local nurses to to do the field work. I've designed the field work, but I didn't know a lot coming into it. So everything's everything's changing all the time, and that's kind of a cool. <clears throat> Thing. Every every experience is a learning experience. Um, and so, you know, I feel like just the learning that I'm doing every day is contributing a lot to how we can do research moving forward, regardless of what the results are from the study. And definitely, like, nothing's ever fast here. That <laughs> I'm sure it can be frustrating at times doing research. Like, you just need to take things in stride and do your best to move forward, but know that something that you think will take an hour will take you half a day. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so we, like, come into these little communities and, like, want to talk to people and see what they know and, you know, tell them what we're doing and why we're here. And, you know, that's challenging because I'm a tall white person going into, like, a little town of Bolivian people. And they're like, oh, you're a doctor? You're going to save us. And I'm like, well, not exactly. You know, the health literacy is really different here than it is in a lot of places in the U.S. But the customs are also really different. Like, I go to talk to someone and they pull up a seat for me and then they offer me, like, a mandarina or, like, some very sweet drink that I'm obliged to drink because that's the customs. And, yeah, so, you know, everything's slow, but also people are so nice. Like, that custom of, like, sitting down and talking to people and asking how you are, like, that is 
so different from the states and the research I've done where, you know, recruitment for a study in the states, it's like, oh, I promise this is only going to take 15 minutes. Where yeah. here you're like, they're like, oh, well, can you sit with me for a whole hour? I'm like, well, I guess so. You know, <laughs> why not? Yeah, I think that's a really amazing thing to point out to you. People here will bend over backwards to make sure you're comfortable and welcome and invite you to do everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Time is different, you know, yeah. like again, this, this whole like us idea of busyness is just like, we were talking about how to translate uh, busy, uh, into Spanish and like truly there's not a word. There's not the same word for this like chronic state of being busy. busy. Yeah. And I've noticed that, you know, working with, with, you know, both of our Bolivian field workers who we've hired and the study population, just like people aren't in a rush. Like they don't care if you're 45 minutes late, which as an American is very frustrating because then they assume that you don't care if they're 45 minutes late when sometimes I do, Yeah, uh, but you know, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. So just slowing down. It's been a good, a good reminder to slow down. Yeah. yeah. I had two final questions unless you got a good one. No, no. I got no good questions so so the first one is in you know your 25 year old white female running around in the jungles of South America I think maybe people would hear that and say is it is it safe do you feel unsafe ever just going into these communities and talking with people or have you largely felt pretty safe doing what you're doing yeah 100% feel safe I think because I speak the language, like, that's a huge thing. Like, no one can talk about me behind my back. I know what they're saying. I mean, here on rural Bolivia, absolutely feels so safe. Like, it's everyone knows everyone. So if someone does something bad, everyone's going to know about it. And someone's grandma's going to yell at you for it, you know. In the cities, I feel pretty safe as well. I think Bolivia is really unique in that it's a country that faced a lot of violence 10 years ago, right? So they've kind of unified in the last 10 years. And I think that there's a, a fair bit of national pride that is the root of the the kindness and the safety that I feel. Like, everyone's like, you know, we're Bolivian, and we want you to know that we really like Bolivia, and so we're going to show you Bolivia the way we want you to see it. And so, I, yeah, I feel, I do feel really safe here. My perception of safety, I think, is different than a lot of people's. I, like, very rarely feel unsafe in situations <laughs> where, you know, like, I, I don't know, I rode my bike a few times in Lima through neighborhoods that people are like, you rode your bike where? I was like, well, I did it. So yeah, but I do. I do feel safe. I I think like research-wise, I like I don't feel like I could ever do this because I'm like a tall white person who's not from here. So, you know, the questionnaires and the blood work that we're going to be doing is all being done by Bolivian people and I mean it would be impossible to to right. gain the same type of trust in me right. that sure. they have that they trust in the field workers. But right. Yeah. Yeah, cuz they wouldn't tell you the same answers as they would tell somebody else. Yeah. Right. But that's a trust issue, not a safety yeah, yeah, sure. issue. So the, the second and maybe final question is is a selfish one because I don't want to have to try and explain to my dad why I'm not at risk of getting chagas and uh-huh. maybe why you would come to a place where there's a chronic, you know, if you get bit by this, you could potentially have chronic yeah. illness. So maybe if you could explain to him why I'm not in much danger at the moment. Well, Dad. No, so, well, Dad, I had the same question. I asked, I was like, well, are you guys worried about getting chagas when you're in Bolivia? No, so the chagas, the the insect that carries chagas, first of all, lives, it's a disease of the poor, certainly. And part of that is is access to diagnosis and treatment. 
But typically the bugs live in the cracks of walls and in thatch roofs. So people who are living in a... Cracks of mud walls, right? Cracks of mud walls, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it could be cracks of white walls. but So, like, they're pretty big bugs and they bite at night. So sleeping under a mosquito net is a great thing to do so that they don't bite you. But it's also so... It's it's the same as, like, dengue and mosquitoes. Like, if you get bit by one mosquito, like, you're probably not going to get dengue. If you get bit by, like... 100,000 mosquitoes in your lifetime who, like, some of them right. carry dengue, like, you're probably going to get dengue. So it's like that. It's, it's you know, your exposure is, is directly related to your risk. So as you increase your exposure to the bug, like, you're at a way higher risk uh, for getting Chagas disease. So lucky for us, we spend most of our time in the developed world. We have bug nets. Um, we know to sleep under those bug nets. Um, and, yeah, so you probably won't get Chagas. And then if you did get Chagas, lucky you. I you know could, a nurse. You could go get treatment, right? So, like... We can treat Chagas in the early stages, but so many people, like, just never get treatment. Um, they maybe don't. Maybe they know they have Chagas, but they're like, well. They can't the afford treatment or they don't have access to it. Yeah, like, the hospital's two hours away, and it's a three-month treatment regime, and you have to go back every month. And it's like, well, you know, if you work seven days a week in your Chaco cutting down bananas, like, you're not going to get right. treatment. And then furthermore, <laughs> the idea of taking a pill every day is, like, very strange if you've never interacted with modern medicine. Like, you know, that's like, oh, I took my vitamin every day as a kid, so that's a fine concept for me, and I go to the doctor. But for someone who's never been to a doctor, like, that's super weird. Yeah. Right. And yeah. remembering to do it. Yeah, you know. yeah, totally, right? Like, we've all, yeah, how good are you taking your vitamins? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, lucky you guys. You'll be fine. Yeah. There you go. Does that, does that make you feel better? It wasn't for me. <laughs> It was, it was so I didn't have to do this. Dad. So I didn't yeah. have to do this on the phone. <laughs> yeah, I mean the bottom line is right. We're all we're here. We're at a risk of a small risk, but our risk is very uh, yeah controlled, I guess. Yeah, totally. So, well, do you have I, anything else you'd like to share? I guess before we re- no, close? but I'm so excited to listen to the podcast and like listen to all the stories of the people that you meet and what you guys learn along the way. Yeah, it yeah. should be good. We hope it's good. We hope oh people enjoy it. It's going to be good. I'm so excited for you guys. I'm excited for your camper van adventures. Yeah. Teaser. Yeah. Camper edition <laughs> coming up. That will be coming eventually. <laughs> so, well, thank you for taking time out of your busy watering the plant schedule. Yeah. To <laughs> really busy down here. You know? <laughs> to talk with us and, uh, yeah. We're super excited to hear where you end up, and we'll keep in touch. And Yeah, thank you so much. We had a blast. Thanks. <laughs>